Welcome to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Interview Archive. We are so glad that you're here. In Michael Wilcox's book, What Seek Ye, he wrote, I have discovered after 70 years of life that we all get hard sayings from time to time. Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured, and he said unto them, Doth this offend you? Often when our own hard sayings come, we are offended, and we answer that question affirmatively, Yes, Lord, in truth, I am offended. There is nothing wrong in answering that question honestly. Above all, God wants our honesty from us. It's okay to be offended at times. It's what we do when we feel that way that matters. This is Sheree Phelps, and in this interview, Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife discusses how we can approach our religious challenges out of our strength and with integrity. Okay, you've talked about how um, challenging dynamics arise between a couple when they enter their marriage under a validation dependency framework and how they'll step back from the marriage and say, you know, they'll reach a breaking point and say, you know, something's wrong with the marriage when really the marriage is exposing their dependency on validation. Yes. And I think in a similar way, we can enter our relationship to our religion under a validation framework. And we might, you know, come to a point where we, where we feel that something's wrong with the religion when when in reality, what might be happening is that the religion might be exposing our dependency on validation. Yes. Meaning, I, I don't think there's any other way to do it. So from a moral developmental frame, you enter into faith from that validation dependency, just as you enter into relationships from a validation dependency. We get married looking for someone who will reinforce us. Most of us get married that way. But that's not really that something's going wrong. It's developmentally on target. And just as when we enter into faith, we're usually entering in from a place of seeking safety, seeking approval. Um, and that's while we all enter there, certainly we don't need to end there. And hopefully we grow beyond that, actually. And often we come into a struggle in our faith as a as an expression of that development. I mean, could you kind of explain what a validation dependent relationship would look like in a religion? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, what, what you're saying is it's completely natural and normal, and maybe even essential to enter into the relationship in that way in that framework. Framework, but what would that look like maybe as an adult who's still remaining in that dependency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what the dependency looks like is I want a sense of church leaders being like a parent figure, being the ones that will tell me what to do. And as long as I'm a good boy or a good girl, I'll have safety or security or I'll have the validation that I'm sufficient because I've been compliant with the rules or the expectations of the leadership or of my peers, right? Because we certainly expect things of one another. And so it can look like doing what the group will validate 
in order to earn a sense of belonging or the earlier version is doing things in order to earn a sense of safety. Like if I obey these rules, I will be protected from the anxieties and insecurities of life. And so it's often that compliance position. Uh, I'll do what makes you comfortable with me and also makes me feel comfortable that, um, that I'll have safety in the world. It also can look like defiance. So sometimes when people, you know, rebel against the rules, it maybe some might say that's um, less mature or more mature, but it's often very similar in that you're pushing against the entity, but still dependent upon it. Like I see people who even leave the church who stay in that, they keep the church as their focal point hmm. and their reference point to bash it, to push against it. Because, you know, some of that's normal because of some disillusionment or some anger. Right. But if it persists and persists, it's often that people are having a hard time moving on to a deeper and richer relationship to truth and goodness that, um, you know, they can stay in a t defiant position without growing. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit of, you know, when your perspectives collide with teachings, specifically church leaders' teachings, or when maybe you feel uneasy about something that has been said, or you're not sure if you agree, or if you have questions with it, I feel like that can present a kind of a unique challenge especially when we talk so much about sustaining our church leaders. Mm -hmm. I feel like it can be kind of confusing to know how to navigate, you know, being unsettled or having questions about something they're saying where you're also mm -hmm. trying to feel like you want or you should <laughs> sustain mm -hmm. them. I mean, how do you, mm -hmm. can you talk about um, maybe how to navigate that where you're not being pulled, I mean, into compliance yeah. or defiance, but. Right. So a lot of people take the idea of sustaining as uh, you must agree. You cannot question, you cannot challenge, as opposed to a loyalty to what is good. That's the only way you can genuinely sustain, right? Because otherwise it's complicit in immaturity or complicit in um, dishonesty. And so to sustain, in my view means that you're standing up for the best in mm. the faith, the best in the marriage or in the family, right? If you're going to do something that's truly loyal, you a lot of times people confuse loyalty with complicity yeah. or collusion. And so a lot of times people have pressured you. If you're not with us, you're against us, but they use it to say you have to kind of buy into things that are dark or dishonest. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to frame it as loyal. But to truly be loyal to someone is you stand up for what is good and what ultimately will allow all to thrive, even if it pressures the one that you're disagreeing with into some kind of growth. Right? You can't be loyal to your children, your mm -hmm. adolescent children, <laughs> without doing things that are invalidating of the, what they want. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to tolerate invalidation for the good very often. And if you won't, 
the system will suffer, the family, the parent-child relationship, um, the faith. That is the way we grow. I've sometimes said to my kids, like the way to sustain the church or the Mm -hmm. way to be a good member of the church is to lead with your honesty, even if it means you disagree with something. And not to be flippant or casual or you know, there is something to going along with things because it's just the right thing to do, even if it's inconvenient for you or even if you would do it a different way. Right. So it doesn't mean like unless it's your way, you're not going to support it. Yeah. But that when you feel that something goes against the core of your integrity, the way to keep the group healthy is to speak your peace. And that doesn't mean that you're right and everyone else is wrong, but it's a way of keeping more truth on the table, more perspectives on the table, so that the most truthful reality can emerge. And I think in our faith, we really have this idea, which I think is not true or or even supported by history, is that the truth comes from the top down. And we love that idea. Yeah. But the truth emerges from the group. What is true and evolution happens as um, the group is responding to society, to one another. You know, so much of revelations that have come from leadership have come from questions being asked of group members. Different... Hmm. Entities like the primary, the Relief Society, these were not just coming from the top down. These were in response to membership, either citing a problem or um, citing a solution. And it was given, um, it was sanctioned by leadership. But so often this is how good things happen. You know, even in my own little sphere of the world, Often it's my kids' ideas or my assistants' ideas that are that are the ideas that emerge and become the helpful thing to do yeah. because we need all that information for good to happen. It's a simple-minded idea that it just comes from one going downward. Yeah, I think that's really important to to understand that sustaining doesn't mean pushing aside all your thoughts and your perspectives and your beliefs, Mm -mm. but embracing them with honesty in a respectful way. Right. And I think there's something to be said, like sometimes to do the best thing is to put aside the way you would do it, to put aside what's convenient for you and to just help and to step in and to back up something because it's just good to do it. And it's okay that there could be a different way or even a more efficient way or whatever, Mm -hmm. because it's the right thing to just go in and support and facilitate something good happening, which is a different idea than when something goes against the best in you or goes against your integrity. Then it's important to perhaps speak up or say, I I can't or won't do that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit then about kind of that disorientation that occurs when you when someone starts to see the humanity of a religious organization or see the humanity in religious leaders, you know, start to mm-hmm. see their flaws and imperfections, I think we almost want to believe that they're infallible, mm-hmm. that they're like 
God's the puppeteer and they're the puppet. So everything they're doing is exactly in alignment with exactly how God would do it. And I think it can be a little disorienting to take in the reality that they're flawed. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, we, we like that idea. We want that idea. I mean, we, my friend said this to me, I don't know if it was her idea or not, but in Catholicism, it's said that the Pope is perfect, but no one believes it. But as Latter-day Saints, we all say the prophet is imperfect, but no one believes it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. So we, we love this idea that they're infallible because it gives us a sense of security and safety. I don't need to take up my moral responsibility and really think through something for myself and really take responsibility for my choices because I live in the consequences of those choices. And so we want that idea very much. And so we will deny the fallibility. We'll deny our personal responsibility in that moral conversation. And certainly there's a lot of reinforcement for this, right? People aren't just making this up in their own minds. They go to church and they hear things like obey, 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 and everything will work out great. And so, but it's the reason why it takes hold is because we like the fantasy that that will give us security and allow us to exit from the responsibility of our choices. A lot of us want just obey and every God will reward it rather than are these consequences I really want to live with? Are these really accruing to my uh, strength? Are these really choices I personally believe are true and right? So that's why it works to kind of reinforce that idea. Um, But it isn't true that even though there is lots of truth in our faith and lots of inspiration within our leadership that we still are not, um, how to say it, we don't get a pass in being a part of the moral conversation and responsible for what we choose. We always are. It feels to me that there's almost this this freedom that can come when we're able to tolerate the discomfort of their imperfect of leaders' imperfections mm-hmm. of their humanity. Yeah. Yes, because I think it allows you to stay awake to the reality, but to be able to make decisions in the face of right the complexities. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think that at first it can feel like, wait a minute. You know, I, it's disorienting. What, who should I reference now, if not them? Um, It's also scary because if they are also imperfect and they aren't just the parents, the kind of pseudo parents, then it puts more responsibility on the individual. And I think that's scary but if you and, and I see this in couples dynamics as well and just people's personal development in so many spheres of their life. But if you can weather that and tolerate the anxiety of being in this imperfect process in a moral conversation uh, without all the answers, there is also tremendous freedom 
and I don't mean freedom from morality, but freedom to define your life more deeply, not just be looking, leading, living other people's lives, as I've sometimes said, you know, when you're in a compliance frame or doing what gets validation from others, while it can seem more secure, it also feels much more entrapping because you have to suppress your individuality. It's harder to fulfill the measure of your creation, right, of who you uniquely are. And there's a lot of scriptural support for not doing that, for not taking safety in that and expressing and developing your unique expression of godliness, of divinity. But that means deeper responsibility within ourselves. That's also our theology, is that we're growing into more godliness. But we want the compliance frame so much. We love the validation of it the perceived safety of it, that we're complicit in keeping that idea dominant culturally. I think guilt can be an uncomfortable mentor, you know, guiding Mm -hmm. us to align with goodness and virtue. But I also can see how guilt can be unreliable and deceptive. Yes. For example, I was, I read Deborah Feldman's memoir, Unorthodox. It's her story about growing up um, in a Jewish com- community in New York. And she talks about the guilt she felt when she bought a book. Because mm. then she was taught, you know, like women don't read, men read. Mm. And we especially don't read in English. And the book she bought was um, a religious text. Um, and it was in English. And she mm. said, talks about how when she went to the bookstore, you know, she lied and said, oh, I'm buying this for my for my cousin. And she just talked about how guilty she felt. Yes. So I think it's interesting how we can participate in something that morally is not wrong, but still feel Absolutely. this guilt. Absolutely. Because first of all, I have two or three thoughts about that. One is that when we first emerge as moral actors, like as young children and so on, we have no choice but to reference the people around us to understand what is good, to understand what is reality and to even define ourselves. So we are borrowing a framework of thinking about what it is to be good. And so in that early validation dependency, we don't really have another option except to borrow that frame and to believe in it. And so the guilt we feel is when we betray that socially validated frame at first. Sometimes I make a little bit of a distinction between guilt and this other kind of guilt you're talking about as more of an anxiety. That is, I feel like I'm going against what will get the approval of others. I'm anxious about it. I'm unclear Mm -hmm. about it. I feel afraid of the social invalidation. But I think as in this story or, you know, I know in my own lived experience, I would feel guilty for questioning things like polygamy or questioning whether or not the prescribed role for women was really God's will, I felt guilty. I felt broken that I would question it because I knew it was going against what others were telling me was the best way to be. But there was a part of me that also didn't feel guilty about it, like felt like there was something there. And so I was in that tension 
as I was evolving out of a compliance guilt and into a deeper integrity position. So I think it's in some ways discerning between is this a guilt that's coming from my honest conscience that I know I've done something wrong, that I've done something harmful, that I've done something that I can't back up? Mm -hmm. Or is this about going against what others have told me, but that doesn't feel right to me? And I'm not saying this is easy. This is a tension and a necessary one and an uncomfortable one to discern and to tease that apart. Yeah. Um, but I think we, if we have been taught that we shouldn't listen to ourselves, that listening to ourselves is dangerous, well, then that will inherently infect that developmental process. Yeah, and I like how you use the two different words, guilt and anxiety. And I think, I think as you walk through that process, I mean, I think it takes walking through it to be able to discern, like, is this guilt or is this anxiety? Like, mm -hmm. am I truly feeling that this, there's something wrong with this or is it, mm -hmm. or is it just my anxiety mm -hmm. based upon how I might be perceived? Right. Which, um, in your Facebook groups, there's, you know, a lot of different discussions and I've seen some discussions around like the wearing of garments and, mm -hmm. and I think the way that we relate to our religious practices um, and maybe exploring them and trying to decide for ourselves the value that we see in them and how we want to participate in them. I think that yeah. can cause um, some confusion around guilt and anxiety as well, especially when, you know, there's the scripture in the Book of Mormon that talks about, you know, it's after a trial of your faith that you receive a witness. So I feel like mm -hmm. there's somewhat of this idea that, in which we, teach that if you want to gain a testimony of garments, then you need to wear garments. If you want to gain mm -hmm. a testimony of tithing, then you need to wear, pay tithing. And so I feel like there can be a little bit of anxiety if you're stepping back and maybe participating in some of those religious practices differently. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't know any advice that you would have as someone's trying to navigate and maybe create a more honest relationship with their, with their religion and their religious practices, how they can do that in a way to... Well, I think one thing I would say is to have patience with that process of discerning and teasing things apart. Um, is this coming from the best in me, this uncertainty, this anxiety, this, this guilt? Or is this coming from something lesser in me, the anxiety or discomfort or guilt? I think there is real value in stepping fully into something to try it, to test it, to test its merits, to commit. I think there's great value in that because I think it can help clarify. I think there's also value in trying the opposite. And we're afraid of that idea, right? And, and yeah. I don't mean to be flippant about it, but it's to say, can I see myself as an honest agent in the moral conversation rather than, you know, just being afraid to consider the alternate, alternate hypothesis, the alternative idea? Yeah. And, you know, I think that I've found both things to be helpful in my life. Part for me going on a mission in part was, you know, I was kind of a doubter from an early age. Even at age nine, I remember asking my primary teacher questions um, 
you know, what if you don't get an answer when you pray? <laughs> Things yeah. like that. I they mean, I, I was, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Exactly. I know. I think it was just like, wait a minute, if there's only one right answer, there's something fishy about that. Like it just yeah. didn't quite fit right with me. And so I was always trying to consider, although I was very compliant by nature. Yeah. Um, and so I had these questions that persisted, but I really was, you know, going to seminary wasn't, I wasn't disobeying anything really. I mean, I was a pretty yeah. compliant kid, but I, I just couldn't quite get the confirmation that I wanted. And so going on a mission for me was I've got to, I'm going to step fully, fully in, give it everything I have, because I need to do that to test its merits, to test what it is. And so I did do that. And that was clarifying for me because it allowed me to know what I really embraced, but it also allowed mm -hmm. me to know what I could let go of because I was staying honest with myself, even as I fully submitted, you know, yeah. honestly, not out of fear, but out of choice yeah. to a process. And that actually allowed me to discern what I claimed and what I didn't claim. I've heard... Well, when, okay, when is it valuable and when is it destructive to take in differing views? For for example, I've heard some people say things like, you know, I'm never going to read the CS letters because I know someone who read the CS letters and they were fine before, but now they are filled with all these questions and they're dissatisfied and they've lost their testimony. So I don't want to risk losing my testimony. So I'm just going to stay away from that. Mm -hmm. And they like, that's like there, there's this fear to be exposed to it, but I mean, there may be some wisdom in choosing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or making decisions around, I don't know, what, what you're exposing yourself to. Mm -hmm. I mean, can it be harmful to spend time reading and listening to others who disagree? I mean, when is that valuable and when is it mm. destructive? Well, I think that to chronically be unable or unwilling to look at an alternative view is limiting your moral development, right? Because if you're saying I, I can't or won't deal with it, yeah. it's just going to limit how deep your knowledge and understanding can be. On the other hand, I, I do understand that, you know, when I came back from my mission, I had more clarity. I had, but I also still had uncertainties and I had a friend who had left the church while I was on my mission. And she was very clear that it wasn't true, that it wasn't for her. And spending time with her was just very stressful for me. It was more than I wanted to deal with at that point. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, um, you know, I just made a decision and I was honest with her about it. I said, I just feel like it's beyond what I can handle right now. And so I don't want to kind of stay in this level of a conversation with you. And I think that was in some ways less courageous of me, um, mm -hmm. honestly, but I also can understand it for where I was at that point. I needed more time uh, to not just be in that like, like I didn't want to constantly be trying to either defend my position or question mm -hmm. it. It was too tiring for me. So I owned it as my limitation, not as hers, because I knew that mm -hmm. that was true. I knew yeah. that I just wasn't ready for that. But I was able to reenter into a, a deeper conversation with her and others 
with time. I just needed some time. So I think in some ways, like giving myself that space was legitimate. But also, I didn't see it as my final position. I knew that I needed to keep having courage. I needed to keep being able to think about these complexities. I felt it was expected of me for being a loving person. I felt God expected it of me. I also was being kind to myself in that process. Yeah. So I I don't think it means you have to rush headlong into every (laughs) complex issue. Um, But I do think sometimes we have the idea that protecting ourselves from reality is God's way. And I don't believe that. I think we have to be able to account for complexity because it helps us be better moral thinkers. And that's part of becoming more godly. You can't be hidden from what, I mean, God is in reality. That's where we see truth is in reality. And it can be easy to deny it and stay in a bubble of thought. It can also be easy to go into it and just go into disillusionment and a kind of cynicism, which I think is also indulgent in a way. I think it's harder to keep integrating what is real and true and let it refine your morality and let it refine your sense of truth and good and um, to stay hopeful to continue to believe in the good, right? I think that's harder and to keep mm, expecting of yourself to do what creates good. Right. I really love that perspective of uh, with your story, uh, with your experience, with your friend of, of recognizing like this may not be something I'm ready for yet. Yeah. And maybe this isn't the best time, maybe I'm not in the right place to take on this information. Yes. And I think that can be really powerful in the sense that it's not you pushing away. It's just you recognizing where you're at in your own life and what you're ready to take in. And just because there's value in, you know, taking and understanding different views doesn't mean, like you said, we need to run headlong into it and try to consume it all and digest it all and make sense out of it all. But to be honest with ourselves of what we're ready and capable for. That's right. And kind to ourselves and kind to yeah. others in that too, because I think sometimes our desire is to judge others um, as a way to close off the complexity that their life represents or to judge ourselves too harshly and yeah. to kind of be kind to ourselves in this process of, of growth. Yeah. One thing you've said in one of your room for two podcasts, uh, and kind of your, your goal in working with people mm-hmm. is to choose from the best in themselves, from their strongest selves, mm-hmm. you know, not the reactive selves, not their angry selves, not their fear-based selves, but to choose from the best in themselves. And I love that perspective because I think sometimes we look at a choice as like, you know, if someone's going to respond honestly and faithfully with their religion, then that means they'll always stay. Or if someone's going to respond, you know, in an honest, strong way with their marriage, then that means their marriage is going to work out and they won't get divorced. And so I think too often we look at the result of the, of the decision and base that on whether it was good or bad. And 
when we think what I think what we're saying is we, you know, we need to step back and look at what's driving the decision. That's is right. that decision made from the best in themselves, from their yes. strongest selves. Right. Yes, exactly. Because, yes, it's sort of back to that idea of sustaining what's driving it. Is it self-serving? Is it reactive? Is it fear-based? Or is it morally courageous? Is it about trying to discern and assert what's most right, even if it means invalidation or your personal discomfort, trying to get to your strongest self when you're making these really important decisions, these self-defining decisions. You know, sometimes the most good is to leave a marriage. I mean, it's often not. Often it's to stay and struggle to keep developing through what the marriage is exposing about you. But sometimes it is the most right thing to say no to what's happening in the marriage, even though it may be hard and may not get the validation of others. So yes, exactly. In that same podcast, as you're talking with the couple, um, you said something like, like, you know, like, I don't know what the right thing for you to do in this situation. And then you said something to the effect of like, and I don't think that you know yet either. Yeah. Meaning that like you could see that they weren't ready yet to, that they weren't acting out of their best selves. That's right. If you were, if you were talking with someone um, who was maybe struggling in a religious aspect of their life, I mean, what might be some indicators to you that you would be able to say, yes, this person is acting out of their best selves with this situation or, or isn't like, how, how would you like as a therapist be able to, mm-hmm. to kind I of discern see. that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one of it's tricky because I think sometimes when people feel disillusioned and it's a fair response to have. Because especially if they've grown up, you know, who the family is, you know, I grew up in a family where there was a little more complexity allowed within the church conversation. Mm -hmm. So I was already aware of some of the church's complexities in its history, just because my dad was a history guy. And he, I was, that was more familiar. It was also, uh, there was more room in my family to have dissenting views. It, it didn't really challenge your belonging in the family. So, but I work with lots of clients who grow up with a very black and white obedience frame, defer completely. And so when they see that, that there's more complexity, mm-hmm. well, they, they have a lot of anger and they have a lot of a feeling of being seduced betrayed. into something. Yeah. Betrayed. Exactly. So, I'm saying all that as a caveat because if you're just in a reactive anger, well, it still may be the right thing to step away. It still may be the right thing to um, distance yourself. But to your question of what are things to look for is if there is a kind of self-righteous indulgence in your choices or if fear is driving your choices right? You just kind of know that it's, it's from a reaction. Now, that doesn't mean that whatever you're leaning towards is the wrong thing. It's just coming still from a more reactive, primitive place 
than something that's more thought out and more sound. And so, for example, you know, I think that um, if you move, if you lead with your behavior too quickly, it often may be a position you can't fully back up. So you want to spend some time discerning and thinking through your choices so that you know that you can stand behind them fully. Well, Jennifer, to wrap up the conversation, um, I'd like you to comment on on something you said in one of your recent podcasts. You said, use your faith to love others and to live your life well. You know, I have a faith, a strong faith in a God who loves us, um, in parents in heaven who love us, and that how we relate to one another is everything. How kind we are to one another, how much compassion we have for ourselves and others in this deeply imperfect experience of living in which suffering is real good people trying to make their way through a complex and often dark reality. And so my faith is in a God that cares that what I do matters, matters for me, matters for others. And so even if it's hard or I feel uncertain or I feel depleted or confused, that God still expects me to move forward because I can't get out of the moral conversation. I'm in it whether or not I want to be. (laughs) Right? There's moments like in conversation with my children or, you know, where the, I feel my own sense of, of uncertainty. I, I don't like, I don't know what the right thing is. I don't know how to be helpful. And yet Uh, It helps me to know that God cares about that uncertainty and my struggling for clarity is it matters because it matters for me. It matters for my child. It matters for others. And so I think about my faith as what facilitates that in me. It is prayer for me. It is a self-reflective process. It is self-honesty. It's knowing that God cares about my honesty, cares about what I'm doing. Um, I think that participation in church and in the conversations around the scriptures and all of that is about finding the lessons that facilitate the best in ourselves. That's what I care about. I care about mm-hmm. finding those lessons offering them to others, offering them to myself. So I think it gets it out of a kind of rigid, are you doing all the things framework? Because that's more about comply for validation, comply for safety, but much more about how are we as members of this faith community, people that I care deeply about, how are we relating to our to the this beautiful faith that we have a beautiful theology are we relating to it in the best way is it helping us to be more loving people are we gleaning from it what's there i mean it's such a rich theology 
And we often focus on the most behavioristic elements of it because it's very human to do that. But I'm interested in us reaching for the richer, deeper parts that are there for us to facilitate our ongoing relational and moral development. Jennifer, thank you. I I really appreciate the way that you kind of approach life in general. There's so much focus in everything that you talk about in and responding and making choices with our integrity, with the best of ourselves. And I just find that to be a very powerful and freeing way to live. Um, So thank you. Thanks for this conversation. You're welcome. And I think just one thing I might add to that is that, you know, we talk a lot about we are that we might have joy, but often when we're in these kind of fear-based, behavioristic, black and white frames, joy has nothing to do with it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's much more like maybe you're looking for freedom from guilt or you're looking for social validation, but there's always this sense of entrapment. And if we are that we might have joy, we have to move from that frame into one in which we are actors and choosers and tolerate more of the anxiety that comes with that and the responsibility that comes with that, but also the beauty that's in it and the joy that's in it. That's where the joy is, in my opinion. Yeah. And it allows us to love more deeply and be loved more deeply. So we're it's a scary process at times, but it really is a very essential one to our happiness. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we ask that you please rate and review the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from this information. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, follow the links in the show notes below. For more information about her online courses, live events, and her free Facebook group.